follow. It's on page 986 in the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. Matthew 19, verse 16. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to be looking at the whole of that passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, please remind us that eternal things are at stake here. The state of our hearts, of our lives before you. The cause to which you've called us, which is to be part of the community of Jesus and to be a light in this dark world. So help us to listen well and... Listen with our hearts and so respond to what you're saying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you like the halo behind me? Isn't that good? (laughs) Thank you so much to those who put uh, the lights behind the cross up there. It looks so good. So good. 
A few weeks ago, I read an obituary on, uh, of Mark Hollis. Mark Hollis was one of the leading members of a band in the 80s called Talk Talk. It's the era of Spandau Ballet and Duran Duran, and some of you need to look at Wikipedia or your history books uh, to remind yourself of those things. And Talk Talk went off in a very different direction as a band from bands like Spandau Ballet. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you look so glazed. You know. <gasps> and in one of the last albums, which is interestingly called Echoes of Eden, their last track is called Wealth. And there's a repeated phrase or repeated lines in that song which says, take my freedom, let my freedom rise, light my freedom up, take my freedom. I think that song is a reworking of a prayer or inspired by a prayer by Ignatius Loyola. But it struck me that that phrase, take my freedom, illustrates one of the most important lessons we can learn in life. It's what you might call the paradox of freedom. That in some of the most important areas of life, if you're going to experience to the fullness what that is, experience a rich life, then it will involve you in that paradox of saying, take my freedom. You lose your freedom in order, if you like, to be freed to experience the fullness of life. Take marriage, for example. In marriage, two people come together and it's there in the service. The words are there. Two people come together and the man says to the woman and the woman says to the man, take my freedom. Forsaking all others. Till death us depart. With my body, I worship you. All that I am, I honor you. In marriage, two people say, take my freedom. And we are prepared, those of us who've been married, we've been prepared to do that because we know that although that makes us vulnerable, because when you say to somebody else, you take my freedom, that makes us very vulnerable. We know that in order to experience the fullness of love, we need to say to somebody, take my freedom. And so that's what we do. Marriage. Children. <laughs> Some of your parents, it's amazing how quickly you forget what it was like BC, isn't it? Before children. When you have children, one of the things that happens if those children are going to thrive is that you have to say to some degree, take my freedom. I don't mean that you pander to their every need. That is profoundly unwise. That is not good parenting. Simply because they have a tantrum about something doesn't mean you shouldn't say no to them. But you can't live as you did before because children will demand things of you. You will be required to give of your freedom, to sacrifice freedom so that your children will thrive and flourish, so that you will be effective parents. Take my freedom. And then what about money? There's kind of a double paradox when it comes to money, isn't there? Money gives us freedom, but actually 
It very easily takes freedom from us. We become slaves to money and to wealth. And so there's a need to live lightly when it comes to money. Live with freedom. Take my freedom. Three areas of life. The paradox of freedom. Marriage, family, money. I want you to see how that plays out in these incidents in chapter 19 in Matthew's Gospel. Let's take the Pharisees when they come to Jesus in Matthew 19 and verse 3, and they come and they ask him a question. They do it to test him. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to embarrass him. They're trying to ruin his reputation. But they ask him a question in verse 3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? As I said, they're trying to catch him out. They are not particularly interested in his answer. But I want you to, to, to realize that there is an underlying issue to the question about divorce. And it's this question of freedom. See, marriage is about take my freedom. Divorce is about how can I hang on to my freedom, isn't it? Under what circumstances can I, and they're speaking from a religious context, so I don't want to offend God, and I don't want to look bad in front of all the other people. I want to be seen as a devout, religious, righteous, and they are all men, man. So under what circumstances can I retain my freedom and still act lawfully? That is, rightly in God's eyes, not what the government thinks, in case you were wondering. See, the underlying issue about divorce is an issue of freedom, isn't it? And so Jesus' response to their question is very, very interesting. And it's important that we understand it. He doesn't talk about divorce. <laughs> this is not primarily a passage about divorce, by the way. Too often we read this as a passage about divorce and then make all kinds of conclusions about it. Well, yes, there is some stuff here about divorce, but it's primarily about marriage. Look at Jesus' response, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, so that they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus is challenging their view of marriage. He's saying, you're asking me a question about divorce, which of course is a very common question and as controversial then amongst religious people as it is now and has been over the last 2,000 years of the Christian church. But Jesus is challenging them to think about marriage, challenging them to understand that their view of marriage is a perversion of what marriage is supposed to be. which is to say, take my freedom. Notice that expression in verse 5. The two will become one flesh. In marriage, two people say to each other, take my freedom, take my freedom. And that's how God has designed marriage. The two people say, take my freedom, and they become one. And God doesn't have a plan B for marriage. 
a man and a woman coming together. And therefore, he says, that which God has joined together, what makes you think, in other words, Jesus is saying to them, what makes you think that God has a plan B? Because in asking the question about divorce, the Pharisees are really saying, what's plan B for marriage? And he says, there isn't a plan B. The way God has designed marriage, the framework for marriage is two people who say, take my freedom. A man and a woman who come together. And Jesus isn't denying the reality of divorce. And he isn't saying Moses got it wrong in the Old Testament. But he isn't giving detailed instructions about the rights and wrongs of divorce. Really important we understand this. Jesus is not saying, Pharisees, you need to sharpen up your view of divorce. He's saying you need to get clear about marriage. So it's really important we understand this is a, pari- a passage about marriage. Can I just, by, the, by as an aside, say, I think often Christians have read far too much into this passage about divorce about the rights and wrongs of divorce, about whether remarriage is possible for Christians or not. Well, yes, he does have stuff to say about divorce. There are implications. But we run the risk of falling into exactly the same trap that the Pharisees were in. The issue is marriage. And Jesus is not here saying when he says one flesh. This is not a mandate for somebody who is in an abusive marriage to think that if they're going to be a good Christian, they should stay in their marriage. So can I say really, really clearly, if you are in an abusive marriage, you need to in some way get out of it. There is no sanction here. Jesus is talking about marriage. Take my freedom. An abusive marriage is not where both people are saying, take my freedom. So there's the issue of marriage. The underlying issue here is freedom. And the Pharisees are saying, how can I still have my freedom and be married? And Jesus is saying, can't. Let's have a look at children. Again, there's there's an issue of freedom here. You see it in the disciples' behavior towards the children who are brought to Jesus. Verse 13, people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. So I want you to imagine. Imagine something similar. You've been invited to to a meal with some really good friends. You're, You're dying to have an adult conversation. You want to talk about the state of the union. You want to talk about Nietzsche. You want to have a discussion about profound things that are going on in life. You want to have an adult conversation. Or maybe you just want to talk about the the soccer or the footy or whatever it is. But they've got little children. You know where this is going, don't you? The little children are still up. I mean, the moment you walk in through the door and you realize the children are are up, your heart sinks because you know that you are going to have a terrible evening. You are not going to be able to have an adult conversation. You start the conversation, you get just partway through the first sentence and one of the little children comes up and does something 
throws a plate over the floor, interrupts, screams, has a paddy. And you get to the end of the evening and you're frustrated and you're exhausted and you think, my whole evening has been wasted because these people couldn't get their children to bed in time. It's the same kind of thing that's going on here. The disciples are cross because these children are taking away their Jesus time. Because if Jesus is talking to little children, he can't be talking to them because little children are little children. He's giving his attention to them and not giving attention to the really important people who are the adults. Don't you realize, Jesus, that these people are bringing the little children to, to, to you and you're spending time with them, but you should be spending time with us because we're the important people. They're taking away our Jesus time. Can you just send them away? See, it's an issue of freedom, isn't it? The freedom of the adult as opposed to giving their freedom for the sake of the children. Jesus' response shows this. Verse 14, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he placed his hands on them, that it means he blessed them. <laughs> he went on from there. So he didn't even have time for the disciples after that. <laughs> they never got their Jesus time just then. You need to give up your freedom for the children, Jesus is saying, and you need to revise your view of who's important. What makes you think that adults are more important than children? Take my freedom. Or take the rich man who comes to Jesus in the passage that Katrina read to us. When the rich man comes to Jesus, he comes with this very spiritual question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' reply is, you need to be free of your money, give it away, and then begin a new life, follow me. It's a paradox of freedom, isn't it? You need to be free of the money in order to be free. So three areas of life where the paradox of freedom comes up in this passage. Marriage, children, and money. Now some of you are thinking, you know, in those half dozen bookshops that are still in existence in Sydney, or whatever it is, I, I, I could go to the self-help section and find any number of books that would say almost exactly the same thing. Isn't that right? If you want a great marriage or relationship with your partner, then you have to sacrifice. You have to give up. That's what they'll say, isn't it? a cost. Or children. If you want to have flourishing children and a great family life, then you have to sacrifice. And of course, everybody's going to tell you that money won't bring you happiness. And if you sell your soul to money, which is very easy to do in the acquisition of money, if you become over-aspirational, it will eat away at your soul and shrivel you. But I want you to realize, in case you haven't, that what Jesus is talking about here goes way beyond the self-help books. This is what the self-help books will not tell you. This is about God. It's about the experience of lives touched by the presence of God and the reality of His work in their life and how that works out in marriage and family and money. Specifically, 
Jesus here is addressing what are to be the characteristics of the lives of those who belong to the kingdom of God. Can I say that again? What we're seeing here in these incidents is Jesus presenting us with the characteristics of those who belong to the kingdom of God. How it's to work out in marriage, in family, in singleness, as we'll see, and in money. Let's go back to the first one, to divorce. This is a spiritual issue, Jesus is saying. Divorce exists not because it's an option in God's scheme of things, but because of you. The phrase is hardness of heart. Verse 8, Jesus permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. That's a spiritual expression. It's It's a biblical expression that says you're a set of sinners. Your hearts are hardened against God. You don't want to follow him. You don't want to be obedient to him. Divorce exists because of your sin, because you're rejecting God's design for marriage. I tell you, verse 9, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. See, the issue is, take my freedom. Take my freedom. Of course, giving you freedom is really hard, isn't it? And the disciples recognize that and say something that some of us have thought from time to time. Verse 10, the disciples said to him, this is the situation between a husband and wife. Look at the text. (laughs) It's better not to marry. It's hard to say to somebody, take my freedom and then live that out, isn't it? It's all very well on the wedding day when the groom is smiling nervously and the bride is radiant and thinking, yes. But two years down the track, five years down the track, 10 years down the track, 20 years down the track, 30 years down the track. Take my freedom. Take my freedom. But in the kingdom of Jesus, that's to be the pattern of marriage. That is what we should be demonstrating. That is what people should see of our marriages in the community of Jesus Christ. People who live out, take my freedom in our marriages. Take singleness. Because Jesus goes on to talk about singleness. He talks about eunuchs. We don't often talk about eunuchs. But look at what he says, verse 11. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. In speaking about eunuchs, he would have provoked a reaction of pity and horror amongst people, not least because having children was a sacred duty. And he's saying here, some people are just born without the capacity to have children. Some people have infertility imposed on them because they are castrated. But some people choose to remain unmarried. As we would put it, they choose singleness for the sake of the kingdom. They've said, in terms of their sexuality, take my freedom. Take my freedom. Children, marriage, singleness, children. Jesus says this too is about the kingdom, doesn't he? 
Verse 14, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. How we treat our children is a kingdom issue. When he placed his hands on them, he went on from their parents. Parents in the community of Jesus Christ ought to behave differently towards their children from parents outside of the church. Parents, your first responsibility is to bring up your children to know and love the Lord Jesus, not to give them a good education. The Bible nowhere says that the mandate for parents is to make sure their children get a fantastic education. There are lots of people across the world, lots of families, Christian families, where they can't give their children an education of any significance. If you can give them a good education, fine, do it. We live in a very privileged part of the world. Enjoy what God has given here. But your first priority, your only priority as far as your children is to recognize they've been entrusted to you by God so that you will love them and nurture them and model to them and teach them and train them so that they come to know and to love the Lord Jesus and come to be part of the family of the people of God. And that involves a cost to you as parents. There are some things it will mean you have to forego in order for your children to experience all of that and to be modeled too. Take my freedom. And then the rich man. It's such a great question, isn't it? Don't teach her what good thing must I do to get eternal life. Don't you just wish that when, you, when you, you're, in, you're talking to your friends and the question just comes out. I mean, you're trying to work out how you can tell them about Jesus, but they just say, hey, how do I get to heaven when I, go, when I die? How do I get eternal life? What does it mean for me to become spiritually alive? Wow, wouldn't that be fantastic? But look at Jesus' response. It's a response that concerns money. And Jesus isn't just saying money can't make you happy. The self-help books will tell you that. Jesus is saying that money can exercise such a power over your life that it will keep you out of the kingdom of God forever. Verse 23, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. You can't get a camel through a needle. And it's not a metaphor in the sense of it's a bridge or, a, or an arch that you know it was difficult to get the camel through. Some of you may have heard that one. Jesus is talking about a literal needle and a literal camel. It's impossible. And in case you don't think that's right, look at how it goes on. Verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, they can't. Unless God does something. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Only God can break the power of money and set people free. The paradox of freedom. It's not just about self-help, it's about the kingdom. Marriage, singleness, children, and parenting, and money. I don't know whether it's struck you, but um, these are very ordinary areas of life, aren't they? Marriage, singleness, children, family, money. 
and they're very important for those of us who are married. Mostly we think our marriage is important. It's a big thing for somebody to get married. Our children are important. Money's important. But they're very common areas of life, aren't they? They're not spiritual. They're not the kinds of things that would come to mind when we're thinking about spiritual commitment, depth of love, the love of God, and so on. They're the kinds of things that everybody experiences to some degree or other. All kinds of people get married. All kinds of people have children and are parents. All kinds of people experience singleness. All kinds of people have to deal with money. They're very, very ordinary, not spiritual. Let me expand on this. Look at the question the rich man asks us who comes to Jesus. It is a spiritual question. It's about deep spiritual realities. Verse 60. What good thing must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus' response to him is to refer him to the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And in particular, to what's sometimes called the second table of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, five, five. First table of the Ten Commandments has to do with God. You mustn't have any other gods before me. No idols. Worship the Lord your God alone. Honor him. And the second table of the law is all about behavior and attitudes, about lifestyle. So notice that Jesus responds by quoting the second table of the law. Verse 17, why do you ask me about what's good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. I take it that what he's saying is God's already told you what's good. What's the problem? If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And then the man asks a very interesting question. Which ones, he inquires. So Jesus says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice, it's it's the second table of the law, not the first one. Don't you think that's strange? You know, if you'd had that question asked to you, what do I have to do to get to heaven when I die? I'm being anachronistic. In, you know what I mean? We might have said something like, well, you know, it's about your devotion to God. It's about trusting in Jesus. Yeah, but, but Jesus doesn't do that. I think that's very strange. And if you don't find it strange, I want to suggest you ought to find it strange. And it gets stranger. Because look at the man's response. Verse 20, all these I've kept, the young man said, what do I still like? Some of us have read that and think, ah, well, he hasn't really kept them. I think he has. I don't think he's committed adultery. I don't think he's murdered anybody recently. Jesus replies in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. That is so strange, isn't it? That is so odd. I have been through various evangelistic training courses over the years. How do you tell people about Jesus? I have never, ever been through a course that said, well, you need to talk to them about your money, their money, and what they do with it. It's never happened. We say things like, Jesus died for your sins on the cross, in your place. You put your trust in him, and if you put your trust in him, then you experience forgiveness, and you will using the colloquialism, go to heaven when you die. We would have responded to the question in a very, very different way from Jesus. So whatever you do, don't ask Jesus to teach us how to do evangelism. It's true, he does say, come follow me, but not before he said, sell your possessions, 
give it away, and then come and follow me. Isn't that strange? If it's not strange to you, you're not reading the Bible properly. And the young man responds, verse 22, when he heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. What's going on here? At this point, I think we often miss something really, really important. You see, we say, well, what's going on here is that Jesus is exposing the real problem, which is that he hasn't really kept the commandments because he's not loving God. I don't think that's right. Is the problem God? Absolutely, because everything relates to God. But we've missed something very important, I think. So I want you to go back to what Jesus says in response to his question in verse 18. Which of the commandments should I keep? Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. There's one missing. There's one missing. Here it is. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Old Testament, so different context. Jesus has not mentioned covetousness. Not being content with what you've got and always wanting more. So let's revisit the text. The man tells Jesus he's kept all the commandments Jesus has mentioned, but there's one commandment Jesus hasn't mentioned. Covetousness. And so when Jesus says, get rid of your possessions, give them away, what happens? Verse 22, the young man went away because he had great wealth. See, the young man had not been keeping the commandments in the second half of the law, had he? He had a covetousness problem. Is that a God issue? Yes, of course it is. Is he fully devoted to God? No. But it's the second table of the law. It's his behavior that demonstrates his failure in the first table of the law. Let me put it like this. It is commitment to obedience to a lifestyle that honors God that demonstrates more clearly than anything else whether we truly love God or not. Or to use the language of James, faith without works is dead. Let me, let me just bring this home because this is so important. I said these are ordinary areas of life, common areas of life, marriage, family, how you do your parenting, how you treat singleness and your sex, sexual life, how you handle your money. They're not about the spiritual things, are they? Reading your Bible, developing your theology, prayer life, how many times you tell people about Jesus in the course of a week. What's the lesson? It's the ordinary areas of life that are the key measure of spiritual health. How are your marriage going? I'm talking about two Christians here. If you're married to somebody who's not a believer, there are some different issues. But two Christians here. How your marriage is going is a much clearer indicator of the state of your relationship with God than how often you read your Bible. Or how often you pray. Or how many times you tell people about the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is much more concerned about your marriage or your parenting or about how you handle your money or about how you handle your sex life than he is about how well you know your Bibles. Is prayer important? Of course it's important. It's absolutely vital. Is reading the Bible important? Of course it's vital. Should we be telling people about Jesus? Yes, of course we should. We're commanded to, and if we don't tell them, they won't know. 
It's our duty to do it. But those are not the most important measures of spiritual health. It's how we are in the ordinary areas of life that demonstrates more clearly than anything else how we truly are with God. Marriage, singleness, family, money. I, I don't know what Mark Hollis had in mind when he sang those words, take my freedom, light my freedom up, take my freedom. If you listen to the track as he sings those words, it starts almost inaudible, but then his voice rises with intensity, take my freedom, light my freedom up, take my freedom. And then almost inaudible, forgiving me a sacred love. As I say, I don't know what Mark Hollis was thinking when he sang those words. But they are, in my mind, perhaps the clearest expressions of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. A person who's become part of the kingdom, who wants to enter the kingdom of Jesus and become a follower of Jesus, is a person who says to Jesus, take my freedom. Take my freedom for giving me a sacred love. It's a response to the love that has been demonstrated to us in the person of Jesus Christ in his death on the cross. Take my freedom. And it's the cry, or should be the cry, of every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not just a one-off thing. Every disciple of Jesus, we should all be saying, every day, in effect, take my freedom. Let my freedom rise. Take my freedom for giving me a sacred love. And the paradox? When you give your freedom to Jesus Christ, you lose everything and gain everything. <laughs> when it works out in your marriage, when it works out in your parenting, when it works out in your singleness, when it works out in your money, when you said to Jesus, take my freedom, you may lose all kinds of things, but you gain everything. Verse 27, Peter answered, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and they will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Do you see the paradox? Do you see the inversion? The greatest exponents, the most powerful exponents of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ 
are those who demonstrate in the ordinary areas of life a life that says, take my freedom. I want to finish with this. Why does it matter? Well, for all kinds of reasons. But here's one. We live in a very dark world. And if we want people to hear and to experience the good news in Jesus Christ, we need to live out as a community and in our own lives people who are saying to Jesus Christ, take my freedom. Demonstrating it in marriage, in singleness, in family, in how we treat those who are the least in the community of Jesus and how we handle our money. To the extent that we are not people like that is the extent to which we make the gospel we speak ineffective. Take my freedom. Light my freedom up. Take my freedom for giving me a sacred love. Let's pray. Father, we often use the expression that the church needs to be the church and this is what this is about. We need to be the church. In your grace and your mercy, help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.